All right, turn your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 9. We're going to be beginning at verse 35, and if you're using one of the blue chair Bibles, it's on page 814. To begin our thoughts this morning on this text, I want to talk to you about corn detasseling, something I know very many of you are familiar with. Corn detasseling is done when the tassel or the immature pollen-producing bodies on top of a corn plant are removed as a part of the uh, pollinization process, obviously. Some of y'all probably haven't heard of this, but where we used to live, where Darcy grew up, this is a staple, not just because of the many, many cornfields in the middle of Illinois there, but because for many people, their first job is corn detasseling. If you are 12 to 14 and you live in central Illinois, you will probably, for one summer, if you can make it through, corn detassel. I don't know if it's different from when Darcy did it, but when, just to give you a picture, when Darcy was 12 years old, it was her first job. They met at the local Dairy Queen to get on a school bus. We still don't know how the farmer got the school bus to do this, but it was the 90s. It was a different time. The kids would load up at 5 a.m. on the school bus and go out to the corn fields and detassel the corn. They'd work from about 5 a.m. to 10 a.m., which if you've ever lived in that part of the county, know that already by 10 a.m. in July, it gets hot and muggy. But don't think that this is something you can do in the comfort of a t-shirt and a pair of shorts. Because of the leaves and the bugs, including some, as Darcy remembers, some very large spiders, you are head-to-toe, long sleeves and long pants in the Illinois sun. I bring this up this morning, not just to know something neat about the center of Illinois or about Darcy's life, but as a central part of our text today, we're going to talk about harvesting. And for most of us, we have not been a part of a harvest, let alone one that didn't utilize tractors and other machines. And the hard work of going through the fields one by one, detasseling corn, is probably the closest thing folks in our country get to what it was like to harvest back in the time of Jesus. Jesus, not to get too far ahead of ourselves, is going to make some analogies between our work as followers of him and the work of harvesters. And it's extremely hard work. And I want us in the back of our mind, as we think about Jesus' call for us to be 
harvesters in his field. But there's going to be a tension, again, not to get too far ahead of ourselves. The main commandment of this text is to pray. And so we're going to see this wonderful juxtaposition of we are harvesters, we are laborers, but also at the center of our labor is prayer. So let's look at our text this morning, beginning in verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. In Matthew chapter 9, Matthew has given us specific examples of Jesus' ministry, and now at the end of the chapter, he pulls back and looks more generally at the ministry of Jesus. And the first thing we see is that Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages. And what did he do? A couple things. Number one, he was teaching in their synagogues. Following the general pattern that continues into the epistles, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile, Jesus ministered first to the people of Israel. And we see that one of the ways he did that was teaching in their synagogues. You see an example of this in Luke chapter 4 where Jesus would teach and reason from the scriptures that he was in fact the promised Savior sent by God to save his people. But we also see other language that Matthew attributes to Jesus' work that he was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus throughout his ministry is engaged in teaching and preaching. And Matthew gives us this phrase here, gospel of the kingdom, to summarize it. Now the word gospel simply means good news. To borrow language from the Christmas angel, the message about Jesus is good news of great joy. It is the most foundational good news that Jesus came to earth to die on a cross and rise again so that all who believe in him will be forgiven of their sins, reconciled to God, and have the hope of eternal life. This is the good news we share. But it is also described as the good news of the kingdom. Now this is a very common way for the gospel writers, but also throughout your Bible to talk about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. It's a rich metaphor that I think can aid our understanding of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. First, it presents Jesus as king. You know, it is a beautiful complexity that Jesus is at the same time our Savior and our King. He is both the Savior who died for us, and He is also the King that we are, all, we are to follow. And I think this is particularly important as we live out our lives of faith. Jesus is my King. When Jesus speaks, it's not just His opinion or a nice suggestion. We are citizens of his kingdom, and we owe our allegiance and obedience to him. Yes, Jesus can tell you what to do. And if you disagree with the king, the king wins. It's also helpful to us in that Jesus' actions towards this world are described in terms of his reign as king. This relates back to what we saw last week in the authority of Jesus. We do not have to fear 
Because every power and every king of this world is under the sovereign power of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We become citizens of Jesus' kingdom through faith, and we then live lives as citizens under the rule of our King. Thirdly, we see that he is healing every disease and every affliction. Jesus continued his ministry of healing. Every disease and every affliction tells us that there is nothing that Jesus cannot heal. We should also see the importance of this aspect of Jesus' ministry. It's included in this short summary because of its importance. It is important because the miracles to continue to give more and more evidence that Jesus is who he says he is. It's also important for us to see the compassion that Jesus has for people and their physical needs. Our salvation goes beyond the experiences of this life, but Jesus still cared for the physical needs of others. And therefore, we as his followers must care for the physical needs of others as well. Matthew continues this summary description of Jesus' ministry by moving from what Jesus did to what he saw when he looked at the crowds of people around him. Let's look at verse 36 here. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Throughout the ministry of Jesus, he is a rock star surrounded by people. And when Jesus looks out at these crowds, what does he see? Well, first, Matthew tells us that he has compassion for them. Now, especially in the context of what is coming in the next verse about workers in God's harvest, we should see Jesus' compassion for them coming primarily from their spiritual needs. And we have to ask ourselves, when we look at the crowds around us, in our community and in our world, what do we feel? Do we feel fear or anger? Or do we feel compassion for the lost? To drive home the feeling of compassion that Jesus is experiencing, Matthew tells us why Jesus feels compassion for the people. Look back at verse 36. Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Now, I don't have any direct hands-on experience with sheep as I know some of you do. But for our purposes, it is enough to note that they are not the most fearsome creatures. I think it's easy for all of us to picture a small lamb being harassed and helpless. Without a shepherd, they will not be led to graze on grass. Again, think of that part of the world. Grass is not as easy to find as it is out here. I have a friend who works at a university in Jerusalem, and he posted some pictures, and I'm like, I get it. You need a shepherd to find grass in that part of the world. But not only will they not find the grass if they are not led, they are not protected from thieves or predators. 
This is what Jesus sees when he sees the people. They are helpless and harassed in need of a Savior and King. It's also important to note that Jesus and Matthew use this language to remind us of the Old Testament. The Old Testament scriptures are filled with metaphors that use the language of sheep and shepherds. In fact, the two greatest leaders of the Old Testament, Moses and David, began as shepherds. I want to give you one example this morning of where that theme connects with the promise of a Savior. But I want you to understand this is one of so many. And I give you one example. And in fact, I'm going to give you only an excerpt from an entire chapter on it. Let me read you this excerpt from Ezekiel chapter 34. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from their countries, and I will bring them into their own land, and I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country." I will feed them with good pasture, and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land, and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. So when Matthew uses shepherd language to talk about Jesus, one of the things he's doing is pointing us back to passages like Ezekiel chapter 34, where God himself will be the shepherd where he will seek the lost, bind up the wounded, and execute justice against the fat and the strong. Jesus is the promised Savior, the good shepherd who feeds, leads, and guards his people. To use the language of John's Gospel from John chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Jesus looks out on the people who are like sheep and has compassion. And just like he said in John's 
gospel. That he would lay down his life for the sheep. Dying on the cross so that all who place their faith in him can be saved. And it's from there, in these next verses, Jesus then turns to his disciples. Not just the ones following him, but the ones who've committed their life to him. And we see because of this, because he is preaching the good news of the kingdom, because he is the good shepherd seeking the lost sheep, therefore, we must pray for laborers. Look at verses 37 and 38. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest, to send out laborers into his harvest. After looking at the large crowds and having compassion on them, Jesus turns and speaks to his disciples. Now in this instance, when it says disciples, it's referring to the larger group that is following him. And this is going to set up chapter 10, where we actually have the naming of the 12 disciples. But in this context, we shouldn't limit what is being said here to the twelve. Look what Jesus says to them. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Jesus uses the language of gathering in a crop to talk about the mission to reach to the lost, to make them disciples of Jesus Christ. But there's a problem. The harvest may be plentiful, but the laborers are few. As we've noted before, the metaphors that Jesus used came out of the everyday life of those people, and all of them would have understood the problem of having a large harvest, but few people to gather it. There are no tractors in this world. So you are doing this with brute force. But can I inject a little optimism into our understanding of the text for our world? When Jesus looks out into our world, he sees a harvest that is plentiful. Oftentimes when we look out into our world, how often do we see a world that is plentiful for harvest? But that is what Jesus sees because of his compassion for the lost. No matter how bad things get in our specific circumstances, Jesus is showing us that when we look out into the world, we need to see a plentiful harvest of future believers in Jesus. Now in verse 38, we have a wonderful therefore that helps us understand what Jesus now wants us to do as his followers. What is the solution to the problem of a plentiful harvest with few workers? Look at verse 38. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers 
into his harvest. I think it's appropriate to consider the fact that Jesus did not say, hey guys, the laborers are few, therefore get out there. Now there will come a time for that, but that's going to come at the end. We're only in Matthew chapter 29. Jesus says, get out there in Matthew chapter 28. Now one of the major differences for this is that this passage happens before the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and the disciples do not fully understand the mission and means of Jesus. They do not fully understand that he needs to die a sacrificial death on the cross before they can be sent out to the nations. But at the same time, while we understand the importance of where this is placed in the book and sort of salvation history, we should also see here the importance of prayer for the spread of the gospel. I will be the first to admit I don't pray enough for laborers. Jesus' words show us how we are to pray for more gospel laborers. The focus point of the prayer is praying to God to be the one to send out laborers into his harvest. God is the one sending out his people. And as I was thinking about how I might and how we might apply this to our specific lives, let me give you four categories of people that I hope would give you some structure in praying for more gospel harvesters. Number, I'm going to list these and I want to talk about them in a little bit. Here are my four categories. One, pray for overseas missionaries. Pray for new people to leave their country of origin and go to a new place. Secondly, pray for church planters and what we might call domestic missionaries, people who move to other parts of this country. They're staying in their country, but they are going to the mission field. Number three, pray for opportunities for evangelism on Whidbey Island. Think of our local community here. And my fourth category is pray for yourself, which I'll talk about in a second. So thinking through those four categories, let me say a few things. Number one, in every generation, we need to be praying for more overseas missionaries and for the next generation of overseas missionaries. Notice I didn't just say the next generation of missionaries. I saw this very interesting article talking about baby boomers and missions. Let me read to you from this article. Baby boomers, those born between 1946 and 1964, are headed into retirement at an unprecedented rate. Data suggests that on average, 10,000 baby boomers retire every day. Recent research also suggests that the typical baby boomer is expected to live at least until age 84. Good job, guys. Couple those two realities and what you have is a generation of people who are retiring and on average will live for another 20 years. The implication of these truths are massive for churches and their ministries. When it comes to global missions, I'm convinced this generation of boomer retirees 
could become a powerful wave of new workers to the nations. Just because you retire doesn't mean you've retired from the Christian life. There's plenty of examples in the Bible of older people getting called when they're old. (laughs) And at the very same time, we need to support and train the younger people around us to follow the call of Jesus to another country and language. Pray for more Christians to leave their country of origin and serve Christ overseas. Similarly, in every generation, we need to be praying for people to move to a different part of the country and serve the church. For people to start new churches where there are no gospel-preaching churches. We need people in every generation who will leave their familiar surroundings and go to another place in this country to serve a church or start a new one. I was reminded of this when I was at the workshop uh, two weeks ago in downtown Seattle. I was telling the other pastor about how I get together monthly with the other four evangelical churches, the pastors from those churches for prayer on the south end. And I was surprised at his response. He said, wow, I wish we had that. From his perspective, in their immediate area, there are not five evangelical churches. It was humbling for me to hear Because I don't think of our community as having a ton of churches to begin with. But it reminded me that there are many places in our country, especially the cities, that need gospel outpost churches. Pray for Christians to be missionaries to other parts of our country and for Christians to plant new churches. Thirdly, we must also pray for gospel workers on this island. We must pray for the outreach of all gospel-preaching churches and members of those churches from Clinton to the bridge. I'm very thankful for the lack of competition I feel between the different churches on our island. Pray for the pastors, the church members, for all of the island Christians to be laborers in the gospel in our larger community. Finally, pray for yourself. Pray that God would send you out into the harvest field because in one sense he's already put you out in the field. All of us, whether we learn a new language or go to another part of the country, all of us need to think of ourselves as missionaries to those around us. I very much appreciate the language of Paul from Colossians chapter 4, verse 3. Paul says this, At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which how I ought to speak. Friends, if Paul needs that prayer, if Paul requests that prayer for himself, how much more you and I? (laughs) But what is that prayer? For an open door and opportunity and for boldness and clarity in sharing the good news of Jesus. We need to be a people who pray 
for gospel laborers or the hard work of harvest or the hard work of having compassion on the lost and sharing the good news of the kingdom. A couple thoughts as we close up this morning. Number one, we proclaim a gospel of the kingdom. Jesus proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom. We must continue his work of preaching the good news that all who place their trust in Christ will be forgiven of their sins, reconciled to God, and have the hope of eternal life. And we preach that when we are saved, we are brought into the kingdom, and then we serve a king who loves us. And we await his return when our king triumphs over all his enemies, and we enjoy peace with him for all eternity. Secondly, we proclaim a shepherd savior. Jesus is the Savior who has compassion on his sheep. We preach a Savior who cares and provides for his people. We preach a Savior who leads his people. We preach a Savior who laid down his life for us. When we feel harassed and helpless, we have a good shepherd who treats us with compassion. And when we look out at our world, at the crowds of people around us, that we would share the compassion of our Savior, that we would love the lost as he did. Thirdly, we proclaim out in the Lord's harvest. Here Jesus uses the imagery of us working out in his field, doing the work of harvesting. Harvesting is not easy work. We are called laborers. But you are surrounded by a field ready for harvest. God has placed you exactly where you are in his mission field for him. And we cannot simply wait for people to magically show up. We must go out into the harvest. Fourthly, finally, pray for more laborers. Jesus gives us a specific way to pray here. We must regularly pray for workers of the gospel harvest. We must pray for those who leave their homes to serve Jesus. We must pray for the next generation of Christians to serve Jesus out in the harvest. We must pray for our own community, for the outreach that must happen on this island. And we must pray for ourselves to be willing workers in this harvest. Pray for a desire to seek the lost. Pray for opportunities to share about Jesus. Pray for boldness and clarity as we preach the good news of salvation through Jesus. Pray because the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word to us this morning. And we would pray for you to raise up more and new workers for your field that we would pray for those who would leave their country of origin and serve people and learn a new language and a new culture for the sake of the gospel, that we would preach the good news of the kingdom, that we would preach forgiveness of sins and eternal life and a life following King Jesus, and that we would preach our shepherd Savior who loves us, who cares for us, who defends us, 
and who has compassion on a lost and dying world. May we have the same compassion for the lost. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for watching this video from Hillside Evangelical Free Church. Our hope is that these resources will help you grow as a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. We're located in Greenbank, Washington on Whidbey Island. And if you live in the area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to have you join us. You can find out more information at our website at hillside-efc.com.